Welcome to Screen Thoughts with Hollister and O'Toole. It is the start of summer and Memorial Day weekend, and here we are. Here we are. And why aren't we in France at the Cannes Film Festival this week? You know, because we don't have the high enough heels to be able to walk the red carpet. That's why. (laughs) We could go barefoot like Julia Roberts. That was two years ago, and she wasn't invited back. So (laughs) there you go. But you know who was invited back in spades? Nicole Kidman is in four movies screening at the festival. Wow. Good for her. You go, Nicole. Yep. Yep. Mm-hmm. Now, Hollister, I'm so curious. Did you follow this whole brouhaha at the festival about Netflix and Amazon? Well, I did, and I understand the European thinking that you know, if if they if they can't do well with these films coming out, then why should they allow them into their festival? You know, it's a free world. So you think that they really should be able to be seen on a big screen in France as opposed to just at home on Netflix? You know, I I just think it's a decision that they get, you know, the festivals in Europe, and if that's the European point of view, then, and that's how they want to support their cinema, which we're not doing that here in this country, but but if that's what they want to do, more power to them. I mean, you know, the thing is, these festivals are all based in certain places, and the rules for the festival gets to be chosen by the festival. So whatever they want to do is fine with well, me. Well, they did change the rules for next year, but I think that's kind of poor form this year to be booing so many people so heavily who did go by the rules that applied this year. So poor Todd Haynes, who brought us the movie Carol, yeah. his film was the first film booed Wonderstruck with Julianne Moore and Michelle Williams because... Yeah. It was backed by Amazon Studios. Now they get big theatrical releases. Well, actually, getting something booed gets it even more publicity than it might not have got might have gotten otherwise. You know, that's a good point. <laughs> I you know I think you can't take these things personally. That's what I think. You know what the whole thing reminded me of? You were telling me all that story about Amazon when that came on the scene. And was it Barnes and Noble bookstores that said we have right. nothing Right. Well, the president of Barnes and Noble bookstore told me that I don't. He didn't know why I was concerned because he could overtake Amazon in a heartbeat because he had bricks and mortar, mm-hmm. and he never did take over Amazon in a heartbeat. Yeah. Anyway, he was wrong. And by the way, it was only nine months. They launched the Barnes & Noble website. was launched nine months after Amazon. There you go. Yep. So, you know, maybe Netflix won't be there next year. But maybe they might not. be laughing all the way to the bank. Well, also, it's. did you know that the, they are re-releasing this week Smokey and the Bandit for the 40th anniversary? No, I did not know that. Okay, but here's... I. I Something about that just jarred me. Sort of like smoking the bandit. Like, seriously? 40-year anniversary? Who cares? <laughs> no offense. I mean, <laughs> Sally Fields, I'm a huge fan. Burt Reynolds, not as much, but it's still a fan. But Smoking the Bandit, the same year, 1977, here are some of the other films that came out in 77, and the one they're releasing is Smoking the Bandit this week. So Star Wars, Annie Hall, Saturday Night Fever, A Bridge Too Far, the Deep and Julia. Okay, no offense. <laughs> I'm not sure Smokey and the Bandit should have made it to the top of that list. Now, you know the interesting thing about Julia. Well, I think there are lots of interesting things about it. I love that <laughs> movie, but what, I, I don't know what, to, what, to what you're referring. It marked the debut of which big actress? Um, well, Jane Fonda. The big screen debut. She was in it. Yes. But it wasn't her first part. I don't know. Who? Meryl Streep. She was in that? Yep. <laughs> she didn't have a very big part. I was going to say, I'm, I'm not sure I remember her, but I haven't seen it in years. So, 
Oh, that, that's interesting. But it's just shocking to me that the one they're bringing back is Smokey and the Bandit. Well, you know me. I never feel compelled to bring anything about the 70s back. <laughs> so. Okay. You have anything from our listeners this week? I do. The first is from Deborah in Wyoming, who wrote in to us to say that she's enjoying the Australian series, A Place to Call Home, which we uh, talked about yes. recently. So I'm glad to hear that. Uh-huh. And then, you know, inspired by our discussion of genius last week, this is what Deborah had to say. Quote, I just read a book called The Other Einstein. It was a novel by Marie Benedict and focused on Einstein's wife, Maleva Merich. And I know it's fiction, but it was very plausible, and I ended up not liking Einstein at all. So <laughs> yes, after, I love her. I think okay, after, what's the name of the book? I just want to get it again. The Other Einstein. And I think after our discussion last week, we might have started an unintended campaign of what I'm going to call Einstein equals male chauvinist squared. <laughs> I know. Hello. Love it. Love it. Love it. I know. And the other I just wanted to mention is from our listener, Val. And again, last week's list of six, inspired by Genius, was our six favorite movies based on she had a great one You're math right. yep. or scientists? Yep. And Val mentioned what about October Sky from uh, 1999? That, yep. that was a great pick. Yeah, it was. Thanks, Val. Yep. Actually, there's so many movies. You know, I love hashtag Blast from the Past because there's so many movies that I mean I tend to watch. You know, The Pretty Woman and Silence of the Lambs over and over again. But there's some great movies to see over and that will last the test of time. That's one of them for sure. Yep. And that was an early part for Jake Gyllenhaal. Chris Cooper yeah. was in it, Laura Dern. Yeah. It's a great movie. Chris Cooper was great in that. He's Very good. always yeah. good. I love yeah. him. Okay, well, moving right along. So it's Memorial Day weekend, which we take very seriously. Obviously, it's the beginning of summer and everybody gets ready to go away for the weekend. But also, we thought we would pick films around war or heroes or whatever we want to sort of mark this auspicious weekend. Do you want to kick it off? Okay, Hollister, my first one is a 1946 film called The Best Years of Our Lives. Oh, I know that film. Isn't that like three hours long? Yep, but this is what really left an impression on me. It is the film that starred Harold Russell, who was a real World War II vet. He enlisted in the Army the day after Pearl Harbor. And while he was still in training in the U.S., a defective fuse exploded and he lost both his hands. So they replaced both his hands with hooks. He was later featured in an army film about rehabilitating war veterans. And this training film was seen by the big Hollywood director, William Wyler, who cast him in The Best Years of Our Lives. So this is what I find so interesting. He wasn't an actor. I mean, he was terrific in the film. But at the 1947 Oscars, the Board of Governors awarded him an honorary Oscar for, quote, bringing hope and courage to his fellow veterans. Oh, that's nice. Isn't that nice? The reason they did it is because he wasn't a professional actor. They thought he didn't stand a chance of winning. But then he did win for Best Supporting (laughs) Actor. So he's the only person to ever win two Oscars for the same performance. And this is Mm. one final point of distinction for Harold Russell. He's the only performer to ever sell his Oscar at auction, which, of course, now is banned by the Academy. I don't know how the Academy can do something like ban it. If you give me something, I can do whatever I want with it. Well, you're absolutely right. And that's why they don't actually give them to you. They lease them to you for life. Well, there you go. Well, I'm going to kick off with Patton. Oh, Um, great choice. Yeah, Richard Nixon's favorite film. Really? (laughs) uh, I did not know that. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it's just one of the best films that shows the complexity of not only war, but 
but leadership and all the different aspects of it. And so I'm picking George C. Scott in Patton as my first choice. Now, that was a long movie, wasn't it? It didn't feel long. Does that count? That says it all. Yep. What else do you have? Okay, my second one, I'm going to go with The Reader from 2008, based on the book by Banhot Schlink, for which Kate Winslet won her Oscar. Silence in the court. Nazi! My name is Hannah Schmitz. You joined the SS in 1943. They were looking for guards. Okay, so I'm going to give you a hint, mine. Okay, ready? Okay. Okay, first of all, the opening music for MASH and the song for MASH, I think it's one of the best. It certainly beats the Titanic and our life will go on or whatever it is. Um... I I did the movie MASH, which also led to one of the most famous and successful series ever on television, MASH. The the United States was just mired in this, like, horrors of Vietnam. And then all of a sudden, they brought out a, a comedy. You know, I mean, you have to understand, Vietnam was just, it was a mess. And then they bring out this hilarious Robert Altman's Korean War satire. Um, but really, everybody thought Vietnam. And for it was just the biggest hit of his career. It, was, it just it sort of gave audiences the chance to to make fun of strife. I really love Mash. It was 1970. Now that was an agent who really knew how to pitch. Oh, I know, right? Especially at that moment in time. I mean, you have to understand. You know, the the country was was just really mired down in this terrible Vietnam anger and rage, two sides against the other, and. You know, so anyway, so I picked MASH. So what's your last one? I'm going with Casablanca. I heard it's good. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is my one little bit of trivia. Okay. okay. In January of 1942, Warners issued a press release saying that Anne Sheridan and Ronald Reagan were going to be reteamed for the third time in a movie called Casablanca. It was a total publicity ploy because they knew a month after Pearl Harbor that Ronald Reagan who was in the Army Reserve, was going to be headed off to fight in World War II. But if you think about the word Casablanca in Spanish, it means... White House. And that's where he ended up. Well, there you go. He's looking at you, kid. Huh. All right, what's your last one, Hollister? Okay, so I have to end, and maybe it's good that I'm ending, because I had to go with The Longest Day, which is about the D-Day landing. There are too many stars to mention. Uh, Some people say it's the greatest war film ever. I certainly, I've seen it maybe two or three times in my life, but each time I, you almost want to stand and salute or something in it. It really, you know, it, it, it's just, it was an immense film. Just to give you an idea of the scale of this film, the producer, um, Daryl Zanuck, he commanded more troops than any of the generals during the actual campaign. (laughs) Wow. Right. And 23,000 troops were supplied by the United States, Britain, and France for the filming. Wow. The enormity of this project was just unbelievably huge. And um, I I, I just feel like every American, certainly if I were going to teach World War II in high school, I probably would open with that film. Interesting. It's the culmination of everything. Uh So I'm going to end with The Longest Day. And um, also just I want to take a minute and say... Thank you to everyone for their service to our country and uh, wishing, you know, lots of uh, moments in time over the weekend to sort of think back on people who gave up their life for, for our freedom. Yes, a big salute to all our vets. Yes, absolutely. 
Okay, so now we have to leave the United States and go to Paris because you saw Paris Can Wait. I know. See, we're going from we'll always have Paris to Paris Can Wait. (laughs) I'm sure you'll recall at the Tribeca Film Festival, this was sold out. I think partly because they paired it with a French food tasting because there's a lot of food in this film. And, of course, it takes place in Paris. And as we mentioned on a previous podcast, this marks the narrative feature debut of Eleanor Coppola, at the age of 80, the wife of Francis Ford, the mother of Sophia. But she did a documentary, didn't she? She did documentaries before about the making of Apocalypse Now, the making of Marie Antoinette. But I think it's been like 20 or 30 years, I read, since she's done the last one. And this is her first narrative feature, so she actually wrote it and directed it. And she said it was terrifying, but she went for it. And her son, Roman, he did Mozart in the Jungle. So I was very happy to see that she dedicated it to her three children and to her husband, because... You know, if you've seen the trailer, you could worry that this might be a little bit autobiographical. Are you happy? We have a good marriage. That's what I asked you. Are you happy? Since it's about a woman who's married to a man who's a very successful Hollywood producer, but doesn't really have time for his wife, who has her own creative proclivities that go unappreciated. An interesting thing, I read once that Diane Keaton said her performance in Godfather... Of course, Francis Ford Coppola's movie was inspired by Eleanor. Yeah, I've read that somewhere too. Yeah, she, uh, which by the way, if you think about it, it's sort of an uptight performance for Diane, you know, like, you know, not her usual, uh, you know, let me be a little odd self, you know what I mean? <laughs> so, um, but wait, so didn't you feel like you were under the Tuscan sun in France? You know, not quite. And so I'm very sorry to report the movie was actually pretty clunky. And I love Mm. Diane Lane. Alec Baldwin is in the movie, who I think... But he has a small role, right? It's a small role, but he's kind of made a career out of these small parts playing the oafish boyfriend slash husband, so you don't see much of him in the movie. I'd take over. That's very generous, but you sure it's okay with you? So let's pretend we don't know where we're going, or even who we are. (laughs) Oh, brother. What I figured I would do is instead recommend a movie that almost has the same plot, which I enjoyed thoroughly. came out in 2009 called Cairo Time, starring Patricia Clarkson. I'm here to see my husband. It's Juliet. I am Tarek. Unfortunately, your husband has been delayed in Gaza. If there is anything you should need, please... And I thought I would just end with a couple points about Diane Lane. Wait, before you get to that, though, Mm -hmm. do you mean it was clunky between scenes? It didn't flow? I mean, you have to give us a little more about the clunkiness. The script was very clunky. Uh, Yes. And there were certain things that just didn't really seem to make sense. So, for example, Diane Lane has an iPhone. And later in the movie, you realize she wants to play her hip music in the Frenchman's car by connecting her iPhone to the car. And yet she runs around taking a lot of pictures of all the food and the scenery with a small digital camera. She doesn't use her iPhone. So that part seemed dated. And it almost made me think that Eleanor Coppola started the script when digital cameras were new and people didn't yet have iPhones and finished the script Hmm. later. You know, I basically went because I really wanted to see how it was going to end. We were together in New York and when you were going to go, when you went to see the film, it's actually this week. And I chose not to go because I thought the trailer, I thought Arnaud Viard, who plays the guy who drives her, I just thought he looked awkward and not good. Or maybe was it the script? It was the script. And also it's one of these movies where I think it's almost like 
a false dichotomy between oafish mm-hmm. husband who has no time for her and Frenchman who does have time for her? Because I'm pretty sure if she chooses the Frenchman in about three months, she's going to be like, okay, I swapped down for a chain smoking <laughs> guy <laughs> obsessed with food who really isn't Seems that sort of good of a guy. involved frankly, in the trailer, but maybe that's yes, just me. Yes, like... Okay, first of all, it's too black and white if all of a sudden you say, okay, you know, here's the good guy, here's the bad guy, right? But instead, they're trying to portray him as the good guy. And afterwards, when I went home and I thought about it, I'm like, he wasn't really that great of a prize. Mm -hmm. It just, it's one of those where you see the movie, you realize how hard it is to capture the right tone, you know? So what I would say, my three favorite Diane Lane movies, which I recommend as our hashtag blast from the past films, would be Unfaithful. I think this is a mistake. There's no such thing as a mistake. There's what you do and what you don't do. The only movie for which she's ever received an Oscar nomination, and I loved her in that movie, A Walk on the Moon with Viggo Mortensen, Liev Schreiber, loved that movie, and Under the Tuscan Sun. My beloved Christina Yang was in Under the Tuscan Sun. As well as Kate Walsh. So two people from Grey's. I know. Just a plethora of of Grey's Anatomy there. And, you know, Diane Lane is one of these actors who I feel like should be older by now because she's been acting since she was six. She looks exactly the same. But um, she, you know, made her stage debut at the age of six. But at the age of 13, she was in... In a film. So this was in 1979, a little romance opposite Sir Lawrence Olivier. Talk about your big great. screen I, debut. Have you seen it? You know, I've never seen it, but I know that Olivier dubbed her the new Grace Kelly, and she was even on the cover of Time magazine back when she was 13. When you brought her up for something else a couple of podcasts ago, I actually went and looked it up and watched it, and she was really good. It's a good film, actually. Yeah. I love her. And I did see the movie at the Cinema Paris. You'll always have Paris. You can watch Top Chef and get the same feeling the way I see it. So. <laughs> and then we both did Anne with an E on Netflix. You know, Alistair, every time I hear Anne with an E, you know what it makes me think of? Uh-uh. Liza Minnelli singing Liza with a Z. It's Liza with a Z, not Lisa with an S, because Lisa with an S goes snot. It's Z instead of S, Lie instead of Lee. Simple as can be, see Liza. I am just, I'm full of trivia this week, but this is my my one little bit of trivia. Have you ever been to the Paley Center for Media in New York City? Yes. Yes, Yes. I love it. It used to be the Museum of TV and Radio, and for anyone who's ever in New York, they have an archive with hundreds of thousands of episodes of TV shows and TV appearances. You can go in and request to watch, you know, the one of your choosing. I went in once, and their computer systems were down, and I wanted to watch Liza Minnelli do Liza with a Z. And even though the computers were down, the archivist knew the call number by heart. And I was like, wow, do you have them all memorized? And he said, no, that is by far the most requested performance ever that they get at the Paley Center is Liza Minnelli. It's so funny that you bring that up because if I were to want to watch something from Liza Minnelli, I would go to the Sterile Cuckoo from 1969 where she's in a phone booth for five minutes and 34 seconds. It'll be great. Like you said, nobody will be there and we'll have the whole place to ourselves and I can cook for you and... And I'll make the bed and everything. I'll keep the Avon lady off your back. (laughs) Okay, so that's what you think of when you think of Anne with an E. But it's about Anne of Green Gables. And in Canada, in the 80s, they did an eight-part series of Anne of Green Gables, which was beloved by everybody. I watched it with my daughter a couple of times. But it's just mesmerizing. And 
And so then they decided to do this remake for Netflix as an original original film. And I don't know if you've been reading any of the reviews, but people are attacking it because I think they were expecting this lovely Pollyanna-type presentation that was done in the 80s. And instead, it's really showing the hard life of Green Gables, you know, living back in that time. I mean, there's some pretty dark moments in it already. So it's being attacked as if it were, you know, it should only be a wonderful, happy story. And again, we come down to that issue of, you know, do we have to only see happy, happy or nice things with great endings or what have you? I think it's actually really well done. It's just not... It's not happy. It's not a thing you'd watch with an eight-year-old. Now, Hollister, remind me, in Ellen Montgomery's classic novel... Yes, novels. She wrote the novel. It was so successful, she wrote six follow-ups because of the success of it. So in those books, did Anne really have such an abusive background before she comes to live with the Cuthbert's? Well, there it's, you know, it's not described quite that badly. So do they, but it, yes, she had a terrible life and they mention it in the film from the eighties and it's certainly recounted in the book, but when you see it on film, they really, really went, I mean, did you find that tough to stomach? Okay. Not only did I find it tough to stomach, but I had to stop watching. I, you know, the production (laughs) values are very high. The scenery is beautiful. You meet the protagonist and she looked like Pippi Longstocking. If you had handed her a monkey and a Villa Villa Coola, I would have thought it was Pippi Longstocking. Uh, Who are you? My name is Anne Shirley Cuthbert, and please be sure to spell Anne with an E. Why are you walking with that orphan girl? I won't eat next to dirty trash. What about Cuthbert? Didn't you fall madly in love well, with Cuthbert? I liked him very, very much. But then when she starts having the flashbacks to the abuse of Hammonds, where the father is beating her and they do a close-up where he's lashing her on the back and he has a heart attack and she's screaming Mrs. Hammond's name, I was like, okay, I'm out. I don't need to see Anne of Green Gables have post-traumatic stress disorder. I couldn't handle it. <laughs> Um, I think it's a, I think it's real, it's not, it's not a family film now. No. You know, it's, it's a film about the hardship of that particular moment in time and the, you know, the life that poor Anne uh, of Green Gables escaped, but I think there's a place for it. It's just not, you're just not going to watch it with your seven-year-old kid anymore. And, um, but I, you know, their, their criticism of it is just that, it depicts life as too harsh rather than it wasn't well done. And that's my criticism of the criticism. But it is Anne of Green Gables. Like, I think if you had to just say, okay, quick name a happy book, that one would definitely be at the top of my list. Like maybe Rebecca of Sunnybrook Farm. Well, Anne actually, did you, read, if you, did you read Anne of Green Gables growing up? Not growing up. I read it in my 20s. It's not, you know, that's, it's sort of funny. You know how like, Disney stories like Bambi, Bambi's not a happy story. No, the deer dies, if I recall correctly. I know, you know, mother gone in the first five minutes. The book, when you read it, is is harsh. And it, it talks about the harsh life that she had before. It's very, very difficult, but it's just harder when you see it on screen on screen yes. that way, you know? And I think the expectation was it was going to be a happy, sunny, bright series that we'd seen in the 80s, and that was not the case by any stretch. 
you know what it felt like? And maybe this is a flawed analogy, but you know how recently we did 13 Reasons Why? Yes. And you were talking about all the criticisms where it kind of glammed up suicide, where people think, oh, wow, I could leave behind this award-winning media no, project. I, I was talking about how revenge. there was a lack of that criticism, but it was my criticism. <laughs> yeah. Okay. It was your criticism, but people were talking about it, yeah. you know? And in this, it's almost the opposite, where I felt like they brutalized poor Anne so badly that I, I just couldn't watch anymore because yeah. I wanted to focus on the willow trees and the Prince Edward Island scenery. And yet I was thinking about you, Hollister, the whole time because you've mentioned before how so many of these child protagonists are orphans, like Pollyanna and Heidi and probably Paddington Bear. You know, they all appear on the scene without parents. I was just going to say, Heidi, are you kidding? The brutality that Heidi faced and almost sold into gypsy slavery was beyond the pale. There, but I on mean, the big you know, screen, they turned her into a musical. She was a little red-haired no, girl. No, but it was still songs. very gruel. I mean, it was you know, I saw it as a young child, and I was like, oh my god, oh my god. I mean, it was terrifying to be stolen from your the beloved grandfather. I mean, terrifying, terrifying, terrifying. It made it made you never let go of your mother's hand. Let's put it that way. <laughs> So, I mean, there have been a lot of films like that. I think that there just was an expectation that this was going to be a remake that you could watch with the whole family, and it is not that. Especially when Netflix was pitching it as our heroine is back with more moxie than ever before. Just the word moxie, well, I, I thought, okay. By the way, I, for, I forgot they'd said, that's so brilliant of you to bring that in because talk about it, you know, in marketing, we all, I always talk with my clients about let's not put an unfulfilled expectation. Mm-hmm. You know, your product is not the second coming. Right. <laughs> and no offense, we really can't pitch it the way you want us to, because <laughs> what will happen is people will be very angry with you <laughs> that you sold them something that is not there. Okay, well, maybe that's what happened with this series, because it's a really, really well done, well shot, well scripted show. And the acting is terrific, you know? When you see the Pippi Longstocking's pigtails, I don't know, that also visually with the poster for Anne with an E gave me an expectation. I'm so sorry of, that okay. I disappointed you with this choice. <laughs> um, so wait, how far did you get in? Tell the truth. Just to that scene. The minute he started lashing her on the back and had a heart attack, I was, well, was like, okay. Was that in the first episode or the second? Yes, or the... it was. It was oh in the God. pilot. That's how okay, long well, I lasted. I don't know if that was fair. Well, by the way, it doesn't get better in some ways, so maybe well, there you're you better go. off. Yeah, maybe you're better off. Okay, we're going to leave Anne with an E then. But again, I think it's worth watching especially if you're interested in that period of time. And I, I think it was well done. So, But just don't watch it with your young child because then they'll have to go into therapy when they're older. <laughs> but you know what I saw a trailer for recently that portrayed a Nova Scotian artist was that new film Maudie with Ethan Hawke and Sally Hawkins huh, based yes. on a real-life story. Right. I thought it looked interesting. I might have to check that one out. So I will be back to Canada on the big screen. Okay. <laughs> okay, and then we did Wizard of Lies, the HBO character study of Bernie Madoff. I went in. I am talking about giving you $100 million. That's not going to do it. One fifty. love to help you, but I can't. One seventy-five. I wish I could. I'm just thinking of it. No, two seventy-five. $300 million. How far do we got to go? If you go above four, we might have something. I can do that. Yes, and Hollister, I was thinking of you because you did a written review of the first iteration with Richard Dreyfus and Blythe Dreyfus. Danner. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. Well, it's so funny because I know I'm a Dreyfus fan, you are not. And, okay, when you compare... Dreyfus's Bernie Madoff to De Niro, it's almost like first grade versus graduate school. De Niro, uh, he's such a great actor. Didn't you just find him 
riveting in that role. Hollister, this is the thing that shocked me more than anything else this entire week. If you had said to me, okay, between a romantic movie starring Diane Lane in Paris or a remake of Anne of Green Gables or another movie about Bernie Madoff, which would I most enjoy? It never occurred to me that it would be The Wizard of Lies. It was riveting. But here's, I decided part of it is it's based on the book by the New York Times reporter, Diana B. Henriquez, who plays herself. She's in the film. And so she's interviewing Madoff and she's good. That girl can act. You know, it's really interesting because she's the only person in the movie who actually ever met Bernie Madoff. So she was the first person who ever interviewed him in prison, the first person he spoke to who wasn't a lawyer or his wife. And it was very interesting because they said, okay, how weird was that for her that she interviews Bernie Madoff in prison and then she's interviewing Robert De Niro playing Bernie Madoff in prison. And this is what she said. (laughs) I thought this was great. She said, quote, I have to tell you, there are moments where the conversations are so close to my conversations with Bernie, and he, Robert De Niro, is so close to Bernie in the way that he responds that it gave me goosebumps. Well, you know, the other thing is, I've seen two or three uh, things that have been done on Madoff, and also I, 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 met, I met him a couple of times. I mean, I, oh, really? I didn't really... Yeah, I did, actually. Did you give him any money? No, he never never was interested in my money, nor did I think that I had enough money to make it interesting <laughs> for him. But but he was always, when, you know, I saw him at a number of, of social gatherings. He was always in the corner with his wife or by himself. And he never really engaged with anybody there. And I remember at the time thinking how odd that was because you'd think that he would be engaging. Well, now it so much makes sense that he would just stay as distant as possible, you know, unless anybody look him in the eye. But Or ask him for a redemption from his fund. But this portrayal of him as sort of abusive to his family before it all happens, I thought was very unique. And I didn't know where she got that information, but I'm going to get the book and take a look at it. How was Wall Street, Papa? Wall Street is good. Dad says things are bad at Wall Street. You're an eight-year-old, and you shouldn't be asking me questions like that. I don't feel like talking about Dad. Wall Street. I'm here having dinner That's with enough. my family. Bernie, what's pro- wrong with you? It's so watchable, don't you think? Yes, and her interview with him, it provided such a perfect framework for the storytelling. That coupled with the investigation by the SEC and the FBI, it was wonderful storytelling structure. The screenplay was by Sam Levinson, the son of Barry Levinson, who directed this HBO movie. He, of course, won the Oscar for Rain Man. But you know what the story structure reminded me of? Another HBO production we talked about recently. Becoming Warren Buffett? Well, it actually reminded me of Big Little Lies, done by huh. David E. Kelly, husband of Michelle Pfeiffer, who played Ruth oh, I, I Madoff. Can't see it. Yeah. Well, it's that same thing where a crime has happened and there's the investigation going on and oh, people are getting interviewed and uh-huh. it's flashbacks, there's music interspliced brilliantly, and it's got all those HBO production values of great cinematography and beautiful visuals. I mean, from the get-go where they've got the close-up of the barbed wire in prison, some fabulous, fabulous visuals, even when they show all the victims of his fraud, and then they pan out and the faces of all of those victims morph into the face of Bernie Madoff, played by Robert De Niro. It was touches like that that were very artistic. Yeah, no, I I hadn't thought about it, but no, I, I totally understand what you're saying. But the other thing is Michelle Pfeiffer. I thought you were gonna protect me forever. 
She nailed her. I mean, I heard Bernie Madoff's wife speak a number of times, you know, again in passing, but she nailed her. I mean, she was her. And the other thing is, Michelle Pfeiffer, again, can go to another place than what we're used to seeing her as. And I thought her restrained uh, approach to Madoff's wife, Ruth, was spot on, but also showed great emotion underneath and the inner turmoil she was in between husband and sons and also her own sense of right and wrong. I mean, this woman went through hell and back again and she didn't overplay it. She didn't underplay it. She just was spot on. So kudos to her. And I don't think she's going to get as much credit because, you know, De Niro is so De brilliant that, mm-hmm. you know, it's it's just hard to remember her. But I thought she really, really did a good job. And with the accent and everything, this was yeah. at least the fourth movie that she's been in with Robert De Niro. And is I it? think the four movies really go to show both of their ranges. What else has she been in with De Niro? They were in Stardust together. Okay. Remember that live action yep. fairy tale like movie, New Year's Eve, which was another one of those Gary Marshall yeah. holiday movies, yeah. The Family, and now the Wizard of Lies. Huh. huh. So four completely different movies. But why if you haven't seen it yet and you're going to watch it, watch the way she walks. Mm-hmm. You know, Michelle Pfeiffer has tremendous grace. You know. Yep. She left the grace aside and she walked with tiny step purpose. You know, she made herself smaller. Mm-hmm. And it was the way she moved that made herself smaller. I, I just, I thought, wow, really well done. I hope she gets some uh, some nominations around the performance. It might get lost in his, but I thought she really, really was excellent. And the two sons, eh, I could have taken them or leaving, you know. I, I was not blown away by them. But it also might have been the script. The script made them a, you know, they, were, they weren't even an adjective. They were, you know, way, way, way back in the sentence structure. And they didn't have great parts. And I don't think they built them. I think the two characters that were built were Madoff and Ruth. I think the script was really strong throughout, though. So, for example, when one of the sons was getting interrogated and they just didn't believe him that he was saying he didn't know that he and his father worked on different floors for different branches. And, you know, they're like, how could you not have known? You were never suspicious of your father. If you're asking me how I didn't know, you're the FBI. How did you not know? And when he starts rattling off how his father had started NASDAQ, had been the prior chairman of NASDAQ, had headed all these committees, I thought that was a very strong scene. The Dreyfus portrayal goes into how he fooled everybody for so long. You know, this is not about that, you know, so, um, but I, yeah, that was a great moment. That was a, that was the strongest moment for, for him, for sure. But, you know, I thought it was such a perfect ending when they zoom in with that close-up on Robert De Niro's face, and he had just read that comparison of himself with Ted Bundy. Well, he said, am I a psychopath? Yeah, exactly. Not contrite in the least. Or that he wasn't really looking in the mirror, you know. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I was a victim too because they, you know, etc. He discarded me like roadkill. How do you plead to count two? Guilty. He took our entire life savings. Count three. Guilty. Dad, how could you do this? Count four. Guilty. Ah! Count five. Guilty. Have you no shame? Guilty. 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 Ah! The other thing is, the director was brutal. The director's portrayal of the hanging of the son, of the suicide of the son, was a brutal presentation when the father-in-law is trying to take the small kid 
out. I, I mean, it's just, well, it was really, really well executed. And, you know, well, I mean, you talk about Anne with an E. How could you not have thought I that was going to say, luckily, I had just seen Anne with an E. So I didn't find that particularly <laughs> brutal at all. I was just going to say, I'm not sure that you can say that this didn't have some equally disturbing moments. You don't moments. see him with the rope. You don't see him getting lashed. You don't see a broken neck. You see him from behind. You don't see mm-hmm. the face. You know, and another thing that I thought made it more dramatic, which was a very good choice, was when Michelle Pfeiffer gets the call that he's dead. You've just seen her. She walks off the scene with the phone, and you hear the scream off stage, and you hear the glass shatter, and yeah. all you see is her cigarette burning. It was a great choice not to show her face. Uh, you know, I think the director made great choices throughout. I think he kept the tension going. Everybody knows the story. It's very hard to do that when you know the story, you know? I mean, honestly, so, I thought I would have zero interest in this after reading about it in the headlines and the story well, aren't telling you gl- was... Aren't you great to have watched it knowing that I was going to? <laughs> that is so nice of you. How do I thank you for taking that moment? Does that does that relieve me from my Anne with an E issue? Well, luckily, you know, it was something to um, self-medicate on after watching the pilot okay, to Anne with an E. You <laughs> okay. You know, Hollister, it made me laugh, too, when I heard them play the song, the Great Pretender song by the yeah. Platters. It was a great musical yep. choice. Or when the family's dancing together at their home in Montauk, and it's just filled with joy, you know, like these are carefree, you know, it's toward the beginning, too, which is perfect when... Nobody really knows what's underneath, you know? Mm-hmm. Really amazing. And I hadn't realized that Ellie Wiesel was one of the victims. Steven Spielberg's charity, yeah. Kevin Bacon, Kira Sedgwick. I mean, just thousands and thousands of people. Yeah. Well, also, it wasn't just Eli um, Wiesel's uh, personal fortune was lost, but also he had, um, there was a huge foundation that he was a part of mm-hmm. that had also just turned in over all their money and they lost everything as well. It was a huge Holocaust foundation um, that wasn't, you know, Wiesel's money, but he brought them in. I mean, there were, all, you know, nobody walked away feeling anything other than terrible because people brought their friends and family in, you know. Yep. It wasn't like everybody just went in and so it was your own responsibility. It was much bigger than that. So It's provided um, the whole premise to the good fight with Christine right. Baranski. Gives new meaning to putting the money in the mattress, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> exactly. I didn't realize that Kate Blanchett had based her portrayal in Blue Jasmine, for which she won the Oscar off of Ruth Madoff. I always wanted to do something with my life. You know, I had energy. I didn't just shop and lunch and go to matinees. You know, I ran charities for poor people. Ran, you know, raised some money for museums and schools. You know, with wealth comes responsibilities. I wasn't just some mindless consumer like so many of my so-called friends. Huh, there you go. So, Hollister, I guess we can say this was a far cry from Robert De Niro's role in The Intern. <laughs> it certainly was. Before we go, on Tuesday, May 30th, season five of, guess what, guess what, guess what? House of Cards is back. But last year, season four launched on Memorial Day weekend on Friday, so you could watch it over the weekend, and now they're launching it the Tuesday after Memorial Day, so that's a bit odd, but don't forget to watch it. Mm-hmm. Now it's time to go and do a barbecue or something. Looking forward to a hot dog and a bun. Yes. Happy Memorial Day, everyone. 